All right, we are in uh, the Gospel of Matthew still, chapter 25. This is technically the last day of the church calendar year. We begin Advent, which starts the new church calendar next week. And, uh, and so we, this is our last week in Matthew before we jump over into Mark, which I think we're in Mark almost the entire next uh, calendar year uh, or church year. Uh, and, and, and we're ending on a doozy here. We're ending after uh, Jesus has spent now several weeks uh, being uh, very stern with uh, the Pharisees and some other teachers of the law. And uh, we're going to end with a bang here. If, if you've been here for very long, you've heard me before talk about uh, like dangerous scriptures or, or clobber verses or something along those lines, right? These, these scriptures that have been weaponized at some point and tend to find a way to beat people up. And uh, a lot of you have come from churches or have traditions where uh, you got hit with those a lot. In fact, uh, I know some of your stories that you left church for a long time because of some of this kind of stuff, right? But uh, these, these ways of kind of beating people up where they leave the room feeling a bit hopeless and burdened, uh, there's not a whole lot of good news in it. Um, and I'm going to be honest with you and say that today's scripture, um, some call it a parable, there's argument over whether or not it technically qualifies as a parable or not, but it's a story that Jesus tells, kind of an apocalyptic sounding story, uh, is definitely one of the scriptures that I think I have weaponized in the past. Um, now, I say that like, it came from a good place, uh, I think, I'd like to think anyways, um, I, I, in, a, in a sense of uh, our need to go out and reach those who are unreached and, and to help those who need help. Uh, but I do think I've weaponized in the past. Uh, I imagine that people have left a couple of my sermons on this t- particular text feeling more heavy than hopeful um, as, as it kind of lends itself for, towards some clobbering. And honestly, uh, to clobber you with it would be a much easier sermon. I struggled to write this sermon this week. I could have written a much easier sermon uh, that would have just made you feel bad. Uh, and, you, and you maybe even would have thanked me for it because some of you are so conditioned by church to do that. But um, I promise to try and do better today. I'm going to try not to make this a clobber verse. I don't want to sidestep the very real moral and ethical implications of what is said here, but I'm going to kind of focus on a little part of it that I've never thought about before. And uh, it. It meant something to me this week, and who knows, maybe even coincidentally it will mean something to you by the end of tonight. If not, it'll be over soon. So uh, Matthew 25 is where we're at. We're in verses 21 through 45, uh, the separating of the sheep and the goats. A lot of you are familiar with it. It's on the screen or in your pew Bibles if you want to follow along there. And it says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when is it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you uh, a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you in sick, sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of these, the one Just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. 
I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer to them, truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. All right, I'm not sure how much history you have with this story from Jesus, but I have got a manic sort of history and relationship with this teaching in particular. On the one hand, I grew up in a church that, to my knowledge, never taught this Scripture even once. Uh, I was unaware that it even existed as someone who grew up in a Christian uh, school and church Bible class six out of seven days a week my entire life growing up. Until I was in college, I literally don't know that I'd ever heard this parable or I didn't remember it anyways. And I would guess that in the church I grew up in, we avoided it because this um, very closely uh, or very easily can be interpreted in such a way uh, that it violated one of our big no-no's in the church I grew up in, which is it borders on what we called works-based righteousness. And so I think it was ignored. And what we meant by that was we don't ever want to give any indication that we can do anything to earn something from God, right? That was a big part of the theology I grew up in. We're totally depraved. There's 0% that's okay with us, all those kind of things. It's all God's initiative, none of ours. And this kind of lays out a situation where it seems like... um, People are earning something from God, right? And so uh, maybe that's the reason we never uh, looked at it. Um, also, I would, I would imagine we probably didn't talk about it because there's a lot of judgment here, and that judgment is reserved for people who did the things that we as a church never, ever even thought about doing. <laughs> so that may have been a good reason to avoid it as well. I honestly can't remember one activity in my church growing up, as, as much as I loved parts of it and felt uh, I'd grown up in there and learned a lot about God from it, I don't ever remember us even talking about the idea that we could feed someone or take care of someone. Uh, We didn't even talk about nudity, let alone clothing the naked. Um, We certainly didn't go to prison unless we were forced to, uh, at which point you were backsliding. And so we just didn't, this was not a part of our Christian life at all. Like these activities were not something that we did. So maybe that's why. But it basically was functionally non-existent to me for the whole first part of my Christian journey. Then later in life, I became aware of this verse. I went to college, and I took Bible classes, and I went to seminary, and I became aware of this verse, and also found out that, much to my surprise, Scripture mentions things like caring for the poor, the widow, the orphan, something like 2,000 times throughout Scripture. Like, it is everywhere if you just open your eyes to see it. And so it opened up this whole new way of looking at Scripture and this whole kind of new world for me. And so I went from it being a non-existent part of my faith to this story essentially being the shorthand stand-in for all of Scripture. Um, It went from practically irrelevant to literally like everything that mattered, right? And so I've lived in both of those places. I've I've, I've lived on both of those poles, you, you could say. And I'm not convinced that either one of those is necessarily the correct treatment of the text or where we should be going with. I want to think about it and look at it anew this week. Now, as straightforward as this text reads, there really are some big 
translation and interpretation questions that, are, that come to play here. If you don't just come in with a very flat, hyper-literal re- reading, which is almost never a good idea with Scripture, it's legitimate to ask a couple questions here. Here's some big things that this brings up that I don't, I'm not going to provide all the answers for tonight. I'm sorry if you, if you want that from someone preaching. I'm, I'm not going to do it. But some, some big questions. It's legitimate in this, in this process of what's happening in this story to ask ourselves, what happened to grace and unconditional love in this story, right? It reads a whole lot like if you do the right things, you get the right reward. If you do not, then you get an eternal trouble, right? That's not very unconditional sounding. It sounds very conditional. And also, what about all that judgment, all that weeping and gnashing of teeth and eternal uh, you know, judgment and all those kind of things? Where does God's love fit into that, right? And then you've got to ask yourself, what about all the communal language here, right? Tend, a lot of times when I hear this preached, it's talked about it like it's a very individual passage, like it's spoken to one person. But in this passage, it actually has very communal language. Judgment is being rendered against nations, it says. What do we do with that? How do you judge nations? What does that mean for us? How does it affect our reading if it's not pointed specifically at individuals but to groups of people? And then you can even dig in deeper on that whole nations thing. And that term for nations, which is ethna, where you get ethnicity and all those kind, of, those kind of things, that term in Scripture is almost always used to talk about Gentiles. In other words, it's a term that's usually used to talk about those outside the church. So there's one whole school of thought in translating this that says that since this is actually, this is actually not talking to the church, it's talking to those outside the church, that those that Matthew is writing to are the oppressed of Rome, that uh, their, their temple has been destroyed, that they are the hungry, they are the naked, they are the thirsty, they are the falsely imprisoned, they are the ones under the boot of Rome. And what uh, Jesus is doing here is letting them know, don't worry, God has not forgotten about you. God is going to settle accounts when all is said and done, uh, that God is with you in the midst of what seems like a period where God is totally distant from you, right? So this isn't even talking to us Christians. And, and maybe that's true, I don't know. I'm not sure what to do with that. I do know that that could be an easy way for us just to duck out of all the ethical implications of what it says here, uh, and I don't want to do that. Um, I, I don't, uh, and not to mention, obviously for us, the church is no longer an oppressed minority. Uh, in fact, we get to elect everyone right now in this country, as it seems. So uh, we are very much the ones in charge. So we should probably still stand in front of it, even if that is the correct original reading of it. I don't have all the answers to the interpretations. Uh, but my guess is that if you've really wrestled with this text the way I have wrestled with this text, or wrestled with the ideas of what Jesus is teaching here, your wrestling has boiled down to a couple essential questions that you really want to know the answer to. If I'm going to take this seriously, I want to know the answer to a couple of these questions. And the questions are, how do I make sure I'm not a goat? How do I end up on the right side of God, you know, God's right hand and not on God's left hand, right? Are these the new rules that Jesus is handing down? that Jesus demands I follow to stay in good standing with God. What do I have to do to make sure I'm on the nice list instead of the naughty list, right? Okay, if I have to do these things, like how much? To what degree? What percentage of my income has to go to people who are hungry or thirsty? Like, how much do I do? When, when do I know when I fit in one side or the other? 
If this is the task list, tell me how to mark things off the list so I know I'm good, right? That's what makes us most uncomfortable about this passage, is that with the way it reads and as we approach it, the, the narcissistic question we always ask, because it's who we are, is, okay, what does this mean for me? How do I make sure I win, right? I would argue... Uh, that this is a really bad set of questions to have for any of Jesus' teachings, and I don't want us to go down that road here. Um, I don't believe uh, that Jesus is trying to form a new group of rule followers following a new set of rules. In fact, everything we've read in the last few weeks has been Jesus critiquing the world's most outstanding rule followers. Right? That's what he's been doing. And I don't think it was all just to say, okay, now that we've, now that we've said all that, here's new rules, and I want you to follow these just better than, than all the people I've just been critiquing for chapter after chapter. I don't believe Jesus is trying to create a new law for his followers, a different set of rules to follow, a new to-do list to check. Now, I'm not saying that so that we can sidestep, again, all the ethical implications of what's going on here. Jesus, very plainly in this passage, if nothing else, makes clear, once again, God's intentional proximity to those we most want to or most easily forget. Remember, in Philippians 2, the past, I probably bring up this passage more than any other, one of the original hymns of the early church. It says, Your attitude should be like that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, became obedient as death, even death, on a cross, right? The God of the universe, and in this story, the king identifies with the lowliest of the low, those that everyone else wants to forget. Christ locates himself among the forgotten, and obviously, if we are followers of Christ, we should be doing the same. Christ is the kind of king that moves towards the needy instead of using the privilege of being the king as an opportunity to create distance, which is what every other king would do, right? That's why you want to be king. All of a sudden, I'm thinking about the Lion King song. I just can't wait to be king. But you're probably not watching Disney movies all the time like I am, so I won't use that as an example. Okay, and it's not in the notes. Keep moving, Mike. ADD. What a strange and beautiful king this is. And maybe that's the most poignant thing of this story, to remind ourselves of the kind of God we have. The kind of king that actually cares about the basic, common, everyday needs of everyone. And go, okay, yeah, great, Mike. But what about us? What do I need to do? How much? How often? How do I make sure I'm on the right side of that line? Again, wrong question. I don't think that is the point here. Which brings me to what I think is the most interesting to me. I've never really thought about this till this week, and I've read this story and preached on this story a bunch, what this week ended up being the most interesting part of this story that Jesus tells. And that is everybody's ignorance of what was going on. Neither the sheep nor the goats had any idea that they were doing anything right or wrong. Everyone is caught off guard by what happens here. If there was a test happening, no one knew they were taking it. Right? More specifically... The sheep are not good rule followers because they didn't even know there were rules. 
You can't be a good rule follower if you don't even know there are rules. All of this is a surprise to them and to the goats, right? Wait, what? When did this happen? Where did we see you hungry or thirsty or lonely or in need? When did that happen? And Jesus has to tell both sets of people, whatever you do to least these is what you do to me. Right? They had no idea that this was the arrangement. They didn't know there was a task list. They didn't know there was rules. So then the question comes, why? Why did they act the way they acted? Why did the sheep feed the hungry? Why did they clothe the naked? Why did they visit the imprisoned? If they didn't know there was a test, if they didn't know this was the rules, if they didn't know this was how they were going to be judged, why did they do it? And that was the question that kind of stuck in my craw this week. And here's what I've come up with. This may be totally wrong. Feel free to disagree with it. Uh, You're probably right. But it appears to me that since they're ignorant of this entire list of rules or these things that they've been doing, they didn't know were the things they were supposed to be doing to get in good with God. It appears to me that they were just the kinds of people that acted in this kind of way. They were just those kind of people. It is who they were. What they did was just a natural result of who they were. They weren't keeping a list. They were just behaving the way sheep behave. Sheep are going to sheep. And that's what they did. Now that is weird to us because I think what we tend to focus on, what I've been taught to focus on in my religious history and my faith, we tend to focus so much primarily on behavior. Right? Most of my Christian, Christianity growing up was about behavior modification. Right? That's every youth sermon I ever heard. Uh, Every Sunday school lesson at some point got back to behavior modification. No matter what story we talked about, no matter where it came from in Scripture, it always ended up with not drinking, not smoking, uh, not not, not hanging out with people that do, and not sleeping around. Like like everything always came back to that place. It was all about behavior modification. I knew there was a list of things that I wasn't supposed to be doing. And as long, in my mind, I grew up believing that as long as I wasn't doing those things, I'm good, right? Which led to a couple problems for me. Uh, uh, one of which I was obsessed with those few things, right? I, I mean, it was, I was so judgmental of anyone that had a beer in high school. Are you kidding me? I, I, I was so judgmental of them, right? I distanced myself from anyone who acted like any of those kind of things because I wasn't going to drink or smoke or cuss or hang out with people do. I definitely wasn't going to sleep around. I couldn't get a date. That one was easy. God took care of it for me in God's providence. But... It's all about like behavior modification, right? And as long as I did, didn't do those few things, I was good to go. Now, what that also meant for me was that anything that wasn't on that list was totally free game. And I've got tons of story that I will not tell to you because you guys respect me right now of things that now are like, oh my gosh, what made me think that that was okay to act like that or do that in this world? But it wasn't on the list. So I was good. Like that's really how I thought about things. It was behavior modification. We're fixated on what we do or do not do. And I've come to believe now, it's like maybe I'm just getting older, and uh, maybe it's wisdom, maybe I'm trying to make excuses for myself. But I've, all, I've realized that in my faith, when I'm focused on what I, just on what to do or not to do, and I'm keeping that list, I have a very hard time in faith. I think perhaps maybe what we should be focusing on is who we are. And the rest takes care of itself, right? 
Maybe God's really in the business not of behavior modification, but of life change, of redemption. Christ teaches us that a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit, right? You can't fix the fruit on a bad tree. And this is what behavior modification is. We're trying to swap fruit on bad trees. What comes off a tree is what's naturally produced by that root system and everything else that's involved that I've forgotten from fifth grade science. We've got to focus on who we are. It's another version of what is my favorite phrase that I learned from one of Dallas Willard's books. And if you've never read Dallas Willard, you should. Uh, I, I love his writings. And at one point, uh, one of the, he, he claims that this is like a, an engineering sentence. You've heard me use it many times. He says this, and I've, and I've never been able to get this quote out of my mind. He says, your system is designed perfectly for the results you are getting. Your system is designed perfectly for the results you are getting. And this was his way of talking about how we try to change things from the outside in. We try to start with the fruit, and what we should be starting with is the roots, right? The fruit are just a result of the system. The fruit results are the perfect manifestation of whatever the tree, the system, happens to be. So focus on the things that make actual lasting change, that change the system. Focus on the roots, not the fruits. That'd make a good bumper sticker. Let's start selling them. And to be honest, in my own personal life, and this is partly just because I'm, I'm, just, I'm not good at it. I'm not a super disciplined person. I struggle in a lot of things. I wish I was better at a lot. But I can only do that which does not come somewhat naturally from who I am. I can only do those things for small bursts of time. I wish, trust me, I, I, I've seen the videos and I know about all the things and, I, and like I, I, I want to be the guy that does those things. Uh, it just never actually happens. It turns out I do what comes from who I am. I can only do those other things for small bursts of time. That which flows directly from who I am happens every day, all day, naturally. And I believe I can stand in front of you and say that who I am is a little different than who I used to be. Now the old person is not entirely gone. I've still got a lot of work to do. But there are things that come naturally to me now that I had to try to force myself to do before. Right? For better or for worse, who I am is what controls most of my day-to-day -day activity. I don't think it's just semantics to talk about this. I think it's something to really consider. I know this. I know my prayer for my own kids, which is a good way of determining what my highest priorities are in life. My prayer for my own kids is not that they would one day feed the hungry, clothe the naked, or visit the lonely. My prayer is that they would become the kind of people that naturally do things like this and view people in this way. That's what I want for my kids. I pray that they are rooted well because the fruits will naturally flow from that. It's my prayer for myself as well. Not that I just learn how to behave correctly, but that I might become a new creation. That God might help me to become the kind of creature that deeply and genuinely cares for those that, even, uh, that others may even ignore. The kind of creature that, that, uh, that wants vulnerability and empathy and care for those around them, that doesn't seek to distance myself from those uh, who feel like a burden because their worries don't have to be my worries. I want to be that kind of person. 
I want to not be able to help but to do those things because it's just who I am. Now, that is a long, slow process. But if God wants to change and redeem us, that is the point of all this, right? To make us into something new. I don't want to uh, learn how to act loving. I want to be loving. Just as the God I try to follow and we are trying to follow isn't just loving, but is love. It comes from the core and the character of who God is. It comes from God's nature. I want to be one of the ones that even when I didn't know there was a test, I'm passing it because it's who I am. Like many places in Jesus' teaching, what is called judgment is really just a telling of telling the truth about us and the world. It's just the turning on of the lights, the naming of what things actually are. God is not just examining people's to-do list and giving them grades. He's telling the truth about who we are. All God does in this scene is tell the truth about people and what they wanted, right? And then, as God often does in judgment in Scripture, he gives them the very thing they thought they wanted, right? Right? Oh, you wanted, if you wanted proximity, if you wanted to be close and in relationship with those who are excluded and vulnerable and in need, then you get it. If you want distance from the ones that you didn't want to have to deal with because they're too needy and you didn't want to have to think about it because you had the privilege of ignoring them, if you want distance from those people, then you got it. The unfortunate part is God is with them, and so now you're distanced from God too. God's judgment is just a flipping on of the lights here. It's the telling of the truth of who they are. I don't think it's about what we do. I think it's about who we are. And maybe the most miraculous part of the story is that none of them even knew there was a test happening. Right? So the question is, who are we? Again, in closing... I don't think the question tonight revolves around whether you are or are not obeying some new set of rules that Jesus laid down. If that's all it was about, we could have a lot smaller Bible. It's not about are you a sheep or are you a goat? How do you make sure you're on the right side of that line? The deeper, more difficult, more daily question for us is who are we and who are we becoming? Are our ears and eyes and hearts oriented towards the one that Christ, the ones that Christ refuses to leave behind because God is love? Are we becoming the kinds of people who love our neighbor more than we love our lists or we love being right? Are we here to only be reassured or are we here to be changed? Changed into the kind of sheep that can't help but give this world as it is a foretaste of the world that it'll one day be. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful as broken people, as people who are often ugly and in need We are grateful that you are a God that draws near to what is most broken about us. 
as people seeking to follow you and who are inevitably bad at following the rules, we are thankful that you are a God who asks for mercy and not sacrifice. God, our prayer tonight is that you might help us to think about who we are and not just what we do. Help us to become the kind of people that cannot ignore our brothers and sisters. Who cannot feel comfortable when our brothers and sisters are suffering around us. Who have no choice but to move towards them and to offer our presence and our help when we can. May we be a people of love as we follow the God who is love. God, change us, redeem us, make us into something new. May we not settle for petty rule-keeping. May we become something different altogether. God, we do love you, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.